All right, guys. Um, open your Bibles one more time to Revelation chapter 3. This morning we are concluding, finally, our look at the first section of Revelation, the first of seven sections that comprise the book of Revelation. This first section is, is dominated by, it's the first three chapters of the book, and it's dominated by these letters, seven letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor, most of which had been started through the missionary work of the Apostle Paul and his companions, and um, this seventh and final letter that we're going to look at is the letter to the church at Laodicea. He's had some severe things to say to other churches for sure, but this one is right along up with some of those as one of the severest messages of the seven from the Lord to them. He's going to strongly rebuke this church for being a church without passion. A church without passion. He will describe it as, if you read it ahead of time, which I encouraged you to do yesterday, he will describe it as, a, as lukewarm, as neither cold nor hot. They were, to put different words to it, indifferent. They were complacent, all the while claiming to be the people of God, claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, just complacent. Lukewarm. And he's going to have some pretty sharp things to say to this church. Yeah, like you said, to every, a lot of other churches, uh, they, they, are, they are words that we need to hear. They're words that we need to heed because, again, this, this, what we're about to read and study, this was never meant to be a church just to the ancient church at Laodicea. But it, like all the others, were to be a letter for every church in every place, for all time, which means it is a letter for our church in this place at this time. Last week we looked at his letter to the church in Philadelphia, to which he had nothing negative to say. He only had words of, of praise and encouragement to them. This week, as he writes to the church in Laodicea, he's not going to have any praise for them. None. He will only have words of, of warning and admonition. And he's, he's going to end the letter like he did so many others with the admonition, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before we go any further, let's read it together. Again, we're in Revelation 3 in the letter to Laodicea. It's found in verses 14 to 22. So if you found that place in your Bible, please follow along with me as I read aloud. Beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself 
and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, uh, what we just read is your holy and inspired, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I pray and I ask again today that if you would so grant, you would give us eyes to see the truth about Jesus, about ourselves, about what you would have us to do in these words, that you would give us minds to understand the truth that Jesus lays forth in this letter, that you would give us hearts to embrace and embrace what he says, love what he says, heed what he says. Give us wills to obey what it is you call us to do here, even if it's to be zealous and repent. And Lord, would you give us all ears to hear as you admonish us. Give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here is what I would like us to see from this letter. Uh, if you're taking notes, it's pretty straightforward. As we look more closely at it, I want us to see four things. First of all, we'll describe the crisis that they face, the crisis that Jesus makes known to them. Second of all, the cause. Why were they like that? He doesn't leave them just with that harsh word, but he does say, tell them what the cure could be um, in verse 18. The cure. And, but he, but he's, he lays before them, finally, the condition, the choice that they, they, they will face. as they Will they or will they not heed his, his, uh, his admonition? So let's dive in and think first about the crisis that was facing this church. So the Lord Jesus introduces himself in the opening words of the letter, like he does in every letter, verse 14, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, I want to just say uh, a quick word about that. I don't want to dwell necessarily for a long time on his introduction of himself there, though it's important, as it is in every letter. I want to clear up maybe any confusion that somebody might face. Maybe a Jehovah's Witness might knock on their door. When he calls himself there, uh, the amen, the faithful and true, and it's the beginning of God's creation. That can be a potentially confusing phrase. Does that, is that talking about um, when God created the world in the beginning? And, because Jehovah's Witnesses will say Jesus is not God. They would say he's special. He was the first of God's creations. He was the first and greatest of all creations. And then once he was created, then through him, everything else was created. So he's less than God. Special, less than God. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses say. You, you come to a phrase like this, they might say, look, it says he's the beginning of God's creation. So, and you, and you might, I, uh, well, uh, so what do you, is that what it's saying? I don't think that's what it's saying. Let me just notice the phrasing. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. It's not the first time we've come across similar language in this very section of Revelation. So flip back to chapter 1, 
And notice that in verse 5, Jesus is described this way, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, that's similar to what he just said, the faithful and true witness, the faithful witness, verse 5, the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. What is that a reference to? His resurrection, which was the beginning of what? The new creation, right? And so I believe, going back to chapter 3, that when he, ta- when he describes himself as the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, he's not talking about the first creation. He's talking about the new creation, right? He is the beginning of, uh, of the new creation that will culminate when he returns. That's further confirmed at the end of this very letter when he, when he says in verse 21 of chapter 3, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus, rather than presenting himself, as a Jehovah's Witness would say, as a special guy but just less than God, no, he is presenting himself as God himself and in this exalted position of one who has conquered, has inaugurated the new creation that will culminate when he comes again, he's presenting himself as this exalted Uh, divine figure to them in verse 14. But just after he introduces himself to them in verse 14, he gets right to the point with them, and in verse 15, reveals to them a crisis in their church. I would submit, of which likely they were completely unaware. We've, We've seen a trend in these last three letters of the accusation that the Lord Jesus brings to that particular church seems to be an accusation where that church has completely, completely misjudged, miscalculated where they stand before the Lord. Like, like he said, like he told uh, the church in, in uh, uh, Sardis, that they have a reputation of being alive, but in reality they're dead. And just like this, I would, I would submit that they're probably completely unaware of what Jesus is about to say to them. But right, right after that, Jesus tells them, I know your works. He said that to many, many of the churches. I know your works, and then he has this assessment of them. You are neither cold nor hot. And to rephrase it in verse 16, he says, they are lukewarm. Now, it seems to me that once you read that, we need to ask at least two questions of it. One, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that a person, a, a Christian is lukewarm? What is he accusing them of exactly? And two, why is it a crisis? I've said that it's a crisis, so we need to be clear on why. So what does it mean to be lukewarm? The accusation is that they're lukewarm, they're neither cold nor hot. What does he mean? I, I submit that he's talking about the attitude of their hearts. They're at the attitude of their hearts with regard to their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and their allegiance to Him, their passion for Him, their discipleship of following after Him, they were half-hearted. In all of these things, they, were, they weren't hot. In other words, they weren't passionate. They weren't passionate to serve and obey and follow just as some of the other churches were and had com- been commended for that. I mean, the church in Smyrna... Uh, do not, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, right? He, he, he knows that, uh, that they had been faithful, and he commended them for it. Not this church. 
They were half-hearted. They weren't hot. They were, they were not passionate to obey in a hard culture. But he also tells them, interestingly, they weren't cold either. In the sense that while they weren't passionate followers of Christ, apparently, at least in their words, they weren't out and out denying him either. At least in their words. They professed faith in Christ, but I guess a way to put it, it was anemic. It was lethargic. It was apathetic. It was complacent. Now, in, I said, I, I was careful to say they had not out and out denied him in their words. Because in Titus 1.16, if you're jotting down a reference, Titus 1.16 talks about people, quote, who profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They profess to know God. They say, I know God. They deny him by their works. And maybe... That's an accurate description of the church in Laodicea. They profess to know God. They claim to follow Jesus, but you'd never know it by how they live. How does a person who is lukewarm live? Well, again, they may not live like an, in every way like an outright unbeliever. At least here, they're not, they don't appear to be accused of any scandalous sin. Other churches certainly were in these letters. Like Pergamum and Thyatira were, were accused of eating food sacrificed to idols, of sexual immorality. Practicing sexual immorality, not just turning a blind eye to it. Laodicea wasn't accused of anything like that. They just didn't live and act like Jesus meant very much to them. And there isn't any joy, there isn't any excitement in knowing Him, there isn't any awareness of the gravity, of the reality, of the call to follow Jesus. Well, that leads to the second question about this, though. Why is lukewarmness a, a, in a Christian a crisis in the first place? Well, just as Titus 1.16 perhaps helped us understand what lukewarmness was to begin with, let me just jot down a few refer other references in the New Testament that might help us understand what is so bad about it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. This is what Paul, the apostle, prayed for that church. Listen carefully. Paul prayed for the church in Thessalonica, quote, that our God may make you worthy of His calling so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Think about that. Church in Thessalonica, I pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. He prayed that they would live in such a way that they would be worthy of his calling as Christians. Does that mean sinless? No, it doesn't mean sinless. Jesus is the only sinless one. It just means that when we stumble, when we sin, when we grow wayward, and we will, we are quick to repent. That's another way that you make much of Jesus. Yes, in your obedience, but also in your repentance. But according to that verse, why did he pray that they would live like that? Paul specifically said there, so that Jesus would be glorified in your life. We exist 
God gives us life in Christ so that we will from henceforth use every action, every ability, every inclination to bring glory to Jesus, to magnify His worth, to show that He is the most, ma- most valuable thing in our lives. Okay, here's another reference. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If you're a Christian, that verse says that God chose you in Christ, he made you holy in Christ, made you his own possession in Christ. Why? Why, according to 1 Peter 2.9? So that you may proclaim his excellency. That you might declare his praise, his worth, his glory, Not only with our lips, but with our lives. Okay? Maybe the clearest of all is 2 Corinthians 5, 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, where it says that God saves sinners so that His people, quote, would no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, let's simplify it a little bit. Who is him who for their sake died and was raised? Who is that? That's Jesus. So you could just substitute his name there, and it would read, so that they would no longer live for themselves, but for Jesus. The Lord saves us so that our lives would no longer revolve around ourselves, but around Jesus. It's all over the Bible. I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the Bible, if you have eyes to see it. Matthew 5, 16. Jesus said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The whole point of our lives is that we don't just go mindlessly about our day. But we are actually wake up with the intentionality to be a shining light. That even that we are doing good works, but not to make ourselves look good. So why? To glorify Christ, to glorify our Father in heaven. The point of reminding ourselves of all of these things is because lukewarm people don't do this. They claim the name of Christ. They say they believe in Him. They say they follow Him. They say they are His disciples, but because they are neither hot nor cold, their lives don't in any way show how worthy Jesus is. They don't make anybody else around them want to know Jesus and follow Him. A lukewarm Christian wants all the benefits without any of the sacrifice. The whole point of being a Christian is not just so that we don't go to hell when we die. If that's the only reason you're a Christian or you think that's the main thing about being a Christian, it's still all about you. And you're still in it for yourself. Granted, I don't want to go to hell when I die. But that's not the whole point. The whole point of being a Christian is because Jesus is worth knowing. And Jesus is worth following. Jesus is worth the total submission of my life to Him. My life, my plans, my aims, my wants, my desires. Everything about me. So that when people talk to me, 
And when people look at me, look at my life, look at what I love, look at what I care about, look at what influences my decisions, what I give my time to, what I give my money to, what is the important, most important thing in my life, when people see that in me, it directs their attention away from me and onto Jesus. And it, makes, it could make them want to know Jesus. It makes them see how much Jesus is worth. And that's what it means to glorify Jesus in our lives. A person who is lukewarm in their faith and doesn't give Jesus the passion he deserves is just a Christian in name only. And a person could look easily at that person's life and think, I don't need Jesus. They do the same things I do. They want the same things I want. What do I need Jesus for? And therein lies the crisis. Because Jesus looks at that and he tells the lukewarm church in Laodicea, in verse 16, because you are lukewarm and because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. One commentator said that this is the only time in the New Testament that this particular feeling is ascribed to Jesus. This is the only time Jesus tells anyone he's disgusted or thoroughly nauseated. When Jesus says that about you, I don't know what else you might call it. To me, that's a crisis. But what's the cause of it? What's the cause of lukewarmness? The obvious attraction of lukewarmness is that it is comfortable. Like I said earlier, it's, it's easier to believe that you can have all the benefits without any of the sacrifice without denying yourself, without taking up your cross daily and following Him. It's easier. It's easy to do and to have and to want all the same things that everybody around you has and doesn't want. And all the while feel like you have the assurance of heaven, the hope of eternal life. But Jesus reveals a deeper reason why people are lukewarm. He says in verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Because... Because lukewarm Christians don't seek to keep a close walk with Jesus every day, not staying in the Word, abiding in His words as His words abide in us. No prayer life in any meaningful sense. Um, never, never being mindful to bear witness to Christ in the world that we live in. It, 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 it's, it's easy to become worldly in our thinking. It's not just a churchy phrase. It's a reality. Our minds are going to be conformed to something. Is it conformed to the Word of God? Is it, or is it being conformed to the, to the way of thinking of unbelieving people all around us? And that can happen almost imperceptibly. We're always being pulled in one way or another. And when you become that way in your thinking, you can deceive yourself and think that you're better off that, than you are because you're only measuring yourself and your well-being by worldly standards. That's what they were doing. They thought they were rich. They thought they were prosperous. They thought they didn't need anything. And Jesus pulled back the curtain and let them see themselves for what they really were. And what they saw was a frightening picture. Instead of being rich in their own eyes, they were poor in the eyes of God. Instead of being prosperous in their own eyes, they were wretched and pitiable in the eyes of God. Instead of needing nothing in their own eyes, quite the contrary, 
They were blind and naked in the eyes of God. That's a scary deal right there. And as you, as you sit here right now, you might feel, I'm doing good. The Lord might see something totally different. The cause is our worldly mindedness, our, our, our conformity to the world rather than to the mind of God in the Scriptures. We assess ourselves from the wrong frame of reference. We just compare ourselves with the people around us. Compared to them, we're doing fine. So what's the cure? What's the answer? Is it just what it is? What's the cure? Let's think about that quickly. The cure is found in verse 18. The Lord tells them to to realize that everything they need, they find in Him. He tells them to realize that the only true richness in this world is to know Jesus. He tells them the only real confidence to know that you are okay is to know Jesus, to be covered by His blood, dressed in His righteousness, and the confidence is deep and joy when we pursue our joy in following Him in obedience. The cure is simply... Genuinely to know Jesus and to love Jesus with the passion he deserves. And one flows out of the other. Lack of passion flows out of lack of knowledge. When we spend time to know Christ, and in so doing, asking his favor to know him more, passion follows. I don't know how it doesn't. Remember the things that, that we emphasize so much. We emphasize worship and and fellowship in the local church, not just coming, planting here, becoming a member here. We talk about the Discover Lakeview class. Plant your life here. Invest your life in this local church while you're here. We talk about the, the local church, we talk about reading your Bible, we talk about memorizing Scripture, we talk about sharing the Gospel, we talk about prayer, we talk about generosity. These aren't just things that Christians do. There's not, there's not just things that Christians do. They are means of grace. They're means of grace. They don't, it's not just something that you do, they do something to you. Channels of grace. They're channels of God's grace in your life to draw you to Himself, to conform you to Himself. When Jesus says in verse 18, buy from me, buy from me, that's how you do it. Trust and obey. Trust and obey is how you buy from Jesus. Before we come to a close and have plenty of time to discuss, finally, for once in my life, We need to finish by noting the condition in the letter that Jesus lays out to them. He tells them in verse 19, those whom I love, that's the first encouraging word in this letter, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. That's the command that he gives. Repent. Don't do it half-heartedly. Don't do it begrudgingly. Do it zealously. Why? 
Why should they repent zealously? Because Jesus reminds them He loves them. Grace motivates. Grace motivates. Already be thinking about why that might be true. That's a question I'm going to ask you. Grace motivates. Law doesn't motivate. Law beats down. Law discourages. Law defeats. He didn't just say. He could have just not said, I discipline those whom I love. He could have said, be zealous and repent. I don't, you know. But then he lays before them a choice, a condition. He does it in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. That's a well-known verse. It's one that's often quoted in evangelistic type settings. As if the Lord Jesus is standing at the door of the sinner's heart, the unbeliever's heart, knocking and just waiting, just waiting. Poor pitiful Jesus, just waiting. No. When that is how we construe this verse, we completely miss the point of it. Jesus is writing this to a church. He's not writing this to unbelievers. He's writing this to professing, believing church. Leonard Ravenhill put it this way. The text, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, has nothing to do with sinners and awaiting Savior. No, here is the tragic picture of the Lord standing at the door of His own Laodicean church trying to get in. Imagine it. He goes on to say, I do not marvel so much at the patience of the Lord with stony-hearted sinners of the day. After all, would we not be patient with a man both blind and deaf? And such are sinners. But I do marvel at the Lord's patience with a sleepy, sluggish, selfish church. A prodigal church in a prodigal world is God's real problem. And that's not just a sobering statement for any church for whom it is true, it is shameful. So Jesus commands that church to be zealous and repent. And He tells them that He is standing at the door ready to bless them if they do. Already with His love. Well, we've now seen letters to seven different churches, five of which had serious, serious problems. And in none of them did Jesus write them off as hopeless. In every one of them, He promised if they repented, He would bless them, bless them mightily. And the Lord would take His word to us in the, church, in the letter to the church at Laodicea. He's standing and knocking at the door of our church. And, the door of our college ministry, and if we will humble ourselves and seek His face and walk in His ways, He will meet with us and bless us in ways that are greater than we could ask or think. For His glory and for our joy in Him, those two things go together. The question is put to us as the letter closes, though. 
Do we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to tell you the two questions I want you to discuss as we close. Lord, thank you so much for these letters. Um, This whole book, this whole book of Revelation, I'm reminded, Lord, is 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 an exhortation for churches to be faithful in a, in a contrary world. Not in a hopeless way, though. In a way that reminds us that you are sovereign over it. Bless, blessing those who seek to be faithful to you in it. But I pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit has said to these churches. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, two questions. Two questions. They're not on the screen, so just listen carefully. I already gave you one of them. One is, why, or why and how? Why and how are we prone to grow lukewarm? Why and how are we prone to lukewarm? And if you think we're not prone to grow lukewarm, why do you think that? Number two, why does Jesus remind them that he loves them before he calls them to repent? Or, uh, to put it a different way, why is grace a better motivator than law? Y'all talk about that.